Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, 10. This is a passage I read uh, recently in my own personal devotions and uh, uh, found it to be very profitable and thought it would be appropriate uh, for us to look at together as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. And as you turn there, the Bible, of course, is written with various purposes in mind. It's written to uh, teach, uh, to counsel, to recount, to encourage, to comfort, to sing, and sometimes it's written with the purpose of exhorting and warning, as we'll see in our passage today. So specifically in this passage, as we look at 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth to warn them of the dangers of loving anyone or anything more than God. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Oh, Father, by your word, we ask that you would work in us a deeper, more sincere devotion to Christ. Help us to cast off our idols and bring us more deeply into an experience of your love. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So our text this morning is going to deal with the problem of sin and idolatry in the life of the Christian, and it will call us to a more wholehearted devotion uh, to Christ Jesus. 
And Paul's going to build this argument by making a connection to the nature of the Lord's Supper. But Paul's argument in our passage is built upon an important assumption that the Bible is one continuous story telling of God's one plan through one people to rescue a world under the condemnation of sin. You know, the Bible's divided into two major parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They follow a single storyline. And this is an important principle for us as we want to read our Bibles uh, correctly and we want to be able to trace Paul's argument in this passage. The Old Testament anticipates what the New Testament reveals. So the Old Testament records the story of God calling a people uh, out uh, uh, through whom the Messiah, the promised deliverer, would come uh, to save sinful humanity. And at that time, God's people and under the Old Testament were largely identified with ethnic Israel, and, and they looked forward. Our confession of, of faith speaks of the church in this era of history as the church under age until the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. But significantly, uh, there, uh, while there's some differences between the church as it existed under age in the Old Testament and the church as it exists in the New Testament and beyond, there has only ever been one people of God, one church. For the church in the New Testament and indeed the church today, the Old Testament is our family story. For this reason, even as Paul is writing to a largely non-Jewish audience in Corinth, he can speak of the Old Testament Jews as our fathers. Paul begins our section by making a connection between his hearers and the stories of Israel in the Old Testament. When he speaks of our fathers, he's referring specifically to Israel's time in the wilderness after God had delivered his people from slavery. Our fathers, says Paul, all shared in the same spiritual blessings that we do, albeit in different packaging. This is Paul's point in verses 2 through 4. So whereas the Corinthian church and, and us today, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper, the church in the wilderness experienced the blessing of baptism as they passed through the Red Sea. And they partook of heavenly food as they ate the manna which God sent from heaven. And they drank of the water which uh, came from the rock that Moses struck from God's provision. These were gifts that God had given to his church as they lived in between the time of, of slavery in Egypt and the expectation of moving into the promised land. And all of Israel had received from God these remarkable spiritual blessings. They had experienced these things in a powerful, powerful way. And yet tragically, as the Old Testament records, with many of them, God was not pleased but they were put to death in the wilderness. The book of Numbers tells us that those who, it was only those who were 20 years of age and younger, along with a select few others, who were able to enter the promised land. And Paul wants us to see how the wilderness generation is similar to the condition of the Corinthians and similar to the church today. This is because Paul wants us to see the wilderness generation as an example to warn us. Though the wilderness generation had been witnesses of God's uh, great acts of deliverance, so they had shared in, in similar blessings as we do, yet they had become objects of God's displeasure. And Paul elaborates on this in verses 7 through 10, citing four separate incidents from the wilderness years in which God's people were subject to divine punishments. Verse 7 is a reference to the scandalous incident of the golden calf, which you can read about in Exodus 32. 
Some of you will remember this story. God has heard the cries of his people. He, he brings them out of Egypt. He leads them to Mount Sinai. And then he, he calls Moses up onto the mountain where he intends to give to Moses the, the commandments, the instructions for how his people are to, to live before him now that they're a rescued people. And as Moses is on the mountain, the people of Israel, they get impatient and then they, they fashion a, a, a golden calf uh, from the, the gold they had taken from Egypt and they worship it. And God's anger in that story is kindled against this idolatrous people, so much so that he says to Moses, he's going to wipe them out and he's going to start over again, uh, start a, a people anew through Moses. But Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf and, and so God relents. God doesn't wipe out all the people, but he does send a plague up, uh, uh, upon uh, the people and many die. In, verses, in verse 8 of our passage, Paul refers to another wilderness scene. This time it's a gory uh, story that's uh, found in Numbers 25. The men of Israel were joining themselves sexually with the people of Moab and they began to worship Moab's god, Baal. And so the chief offenders in this incident, uh, they are subject to capital punishment and then a plague claims the lives of thousands before the evil of idolatry is purged from Israel's midst. In verses 9 and 10, Paul highlights the guilt of the church in the wilderness again as they put Christ to the test by their impatience uh, in verse 9 and as they complained against God's ways, verse 10. In each of these cases, God's judgment was exercised against the people and many died as a result of their evil desires. Idolatry, sexual immorality, impatience, grumbling, these were all manifested in the church in the wilderness. And because of this, though they had been baptized, though they had ate of God's food, these outward benefits were not sufficient to protect the people from God's judgment. Now these accounts are not just sprinkled through the Bible to sort of spice things up and to catch our attention. But Paul repeats himself in our passage uh, to make the point that these stories of Israel's sin and God's judgment, they were written down for our example, for, the example, for an example for the church today. For the church as we exist in this time between the period of Christ's first coming and the period of Christ's second coming. Well, what are we to take from these examples? Well, Paul tells us uh, both in verse 6 and verse 12. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we may, might not desire evil as they did. In verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The lesson that Paul wants his readers to take from these stories is that they should not presume that a follower of Christ might engage in spiritual coasting. You know what coasting is. For some of you, that may have defined your high school or college experience, right? You do just enough homework to get by. You rely upon sort of natural efforts or, or giftedness, right? Maybe just uh, you think, ah, oh, the, the teacher likes me, I'll be fine. Well, spiritual coasting happens when we just drift along, trusting in certain assumptions that we have about God, uh, certain assumptions that we have about the fact that, well, we belong to uh, the church and thinking maybe that we know the right answers. I think of uh, my years as a teenager and a college student uh, growing up in the church and attending Christian schools. There was a spirit of presumption among my peers that said we could claim the benefits of being Christian while living however we wanted. 
there was a, a sense that we thought, we're standing, we're going to be okay, we're going to be fine, but we weren't. Paul's warning to these relatively new Christians is that Christians must be watchful. We must take heed. Temptation to sin will come from outside of us, but also from within us. Life in in a sinful world will always involve a temptation, and sometimes even we will succumb to these temptations. But Christians are called to be on guard against temptation, to resist temptation, to endure temptation, to flee from it. Paul's point in verse 13 is that a Christian should never just resign themselves to sin or despair of it. It's just going to happen. Because no matter how great the pressures, no specific sin is ever a foregone conclusion in the life of a Christian. Even as Paul warns these Christians concerning their sin, he wants to encourage them by saying, God who is faithful helps us to resist sin, helps us to flee from sin. And this exhortation to watchfulness against temptation in verse 13 naturally leads into the command in verse 14 to flee from idolatry. And it's helpful for us to consider just how relevant a command this would have been for Paul's audience as they lived in Corinth. One scholar uh, described first century Corinth as New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all mixed into one steaming hotbed of vice and immorality. It was a sizable uh, port city. It was home to a variety of temples to pagan gods. The members of this fledgling church, which was only a couple years old at this point, they would have been pressed on every side by idols. And these idols weren't some uh, mere side hobby that sort of happened over here, but they would have shaped the very fabric, the very structure of social and commercial life in Paul's day. This helps us understand why Paul has just spent in this book Two chapters discussing the controversy in the church over the permissibility of eating meat that had been offered uh, in pagan sacrifice. So there he's dealing with the situation, uh, for example, that a Corinthian, a Corinthian Christian, maybe he's, he's eating a hamburger and someone says, hey, wait a second, I think that that cow had been uh, worshipped to Athena over here, and, and what do you do in that sort of situation? But in these verses, Paul is dealing with a slightly more immediate ethical question. Suppose you're a Christian businessman in Corinth and you're meeting up with some clients in the city for lunch to confirm a deal. And just as the lunch is concluding, one person at the table says, hey, we really want this venture uh, to go well. It's really important. Uh, Let's just drop in at the the temple of Athena, uh, the goddess of wisdom, just for a quick sacrifice, just to seal the deal, because this is really important, just before we sign off on it. To the average Corinthian, this was a no-brainer. Why not? It's the way we do things around here. In Corinth, there were temples and sacred sites set up all around the city to all kinds of so-called gods and goddesses. To not participate in these things was to evoke the same sort of look uh, that our, our, our college students get if they say they're not sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Say, what do you mean you're not going to do that? What's wrong with you? I mean, that's so strange. These Christians in Corinth would have been under immense pressure to conform or capitulate to the idolatrous practices of their surrounding culture. And it seems quite likely, given the time that Paul spends on it, that some of them had succumbed to the pressure, or at least that they were feeling the serious pressure or temptation to do so. Now, some of you, I would go so far as to say, many of you know something of this pressure to conform. 
Though I doubt any of us have been invited to the Temple of Aphrodite this past week, uh, our day and age has modernized its own set of idols. Because an idol is anyone or anything that we love more than the God of the Bible. And this could be another, uh, the deity of another religion, Allah or Vishnu. It, it could just as easily be, though, uh, sex or power or politics, personal autonomy, money, family, comfort, race. These things can become idols when they become objects of our hope, the source of our joy, and the reason for our being. And so as we see Paul's command to flee from idolatry, this is very much a command that's relevant to us today. But Paul makes this appeal to us in a very striking way. He's going to make an argument to support his exhortation, flee from idols, and he's going to do it by appealing to the Lord's Supper. In verses 16 and 17, Paul uh, makes reference to the cup of blessing and the bread that we break. These are references to the Lord's Supper. So as a congregation, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper later, later this morning. But why does Paul bring the Lord's Supper up here? How does Paul see the Lord's Supper as part of an argument to help the Corinthians flee idolatry? I find Paul's tactic here just fascinating, not only for how it can change how we think about what we do at the Lord's Supper, but also because I think it has the capacity to help you as a believer in your fight against your sin. Because Paul sees something dramatic, something powerful happening when we come to the Lord's Supper. We don't always think this way, of course. From the outside looking in, the Lord's Supper may appear odd. It's just a quaint tradition of the church. But Paul tells us in these verses that it's so much more than that. Because when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's an act of participation or, or quite literally an act of fellowship with Christ. When we eat of the bread and we drink of the wine which Christ gave to his church, it's an act of communion of spiritual intimacy as we partake in faith by the Spirit. So in the Lord's Supper, Jesus, raised from the dead, ascended up into heaven. He invites his spiritual siblings to pull a seat up to the family table and to eat with him, to relate with him, not as distant worshipers or paying homage to him as we think we maybe are supposed to, but he invites us to come as brothers and sisters whom he has ransomed by his blood and by his resurrection. Paul's point in this passage is that the Lord's Supper is never something that we just do in a discreet way, in a detached way, just over here as an individual on our own, disconnected from anyone or anything. Because whenever we eat and drink in faith, we experience a vertical communion with Christ as our spirits commune with his. And there's also, as Paul goes on to say in verse 17, a horizontal communion that happens with other believers. But the Lord's Supper involves a real spiritual communion or fellowship with those who participate. I want to pause for just a moment uh, to speak to those of you who are here this morning uh, who are not Christian or who maybe are new Christians. Uh, Because, as I've said, the Lord's Supper may appear strange to you. You might have lots of questions about it. But what I want you to see this morning is that the Lord's Supper is a picture of why we think it is such a precious thing to be a Christian. Because as Christians, we believe that the aim of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, was so that we who were Christ's enemies because of our sin, we might become his friends and eat with him at his table. 
The Lord's Supper is a regular reminder that Jesus has rescued us from condemnation and he has given us communion with him instead. But just as it's possible to have communion with Christ who is in heaven, it is possible to have communion with the, devil, uh, the demons who are in hell. Look at verses 18 to 20. Once again, appealing to the Old Testament, Paul argues that when the church was in the wilderness offering sacrifices on the altar to God, these sacrifices were an act of communion with God. So take, for example, the peace offering. You can read about that in Leviticus 3. There an animal would be uh, sacrificed on the altar. The fat was given to the Lord, and the rest of of the meat was eaten by the priest and by the worshipers uh, in the presence of the Lord, and it signified that now there was peace between the worshiper and God. And the principle that Paul is establishing is that the worshiper has fellowship with the worshipped through the act of sacrifice. And so when someone makes a sacrifice to another god, they have fellowship with or participate with those other gods. Not that there are other gods, Paul quickly adds, but the one who offers sacrifices to idols eats and drinks with the demonic forces behind the idols they worship. So to worship idols, to devote ourselves to them, is to commune with demons. So Paul is saying when you eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper, you have fellowship with or communion with Christ, but when you partake in the worship of idols, you have fellowship with demons. And there's a fundamental incongruence between doing the one and doing the other. Maybe an example will help. Nellie Bart was married to one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century. Her husband, Karl Bart, was famous for his opposition to Hitler, uh, for his critique of theological liberalism, for uh, his extensive writing. He was a man who was revered by many for his towering intellect, uh, for his uh, theological acumen. But Nellie, Karl's wife, burned with jealousy toward her husband. And if you were in Nellie's shoes you would likely despise the famed professor of theology as well. Because when Karl Barth had been married to Nellie for 13 years, he fell in love with Charlotte von Kirschbaum. The illicit relationship, which began, was wicked enough, but eventually Charlotte was trained to be Karl's personal secretary, and Karl then moved her into the family home where his adulterous relationship with Charlotte continued. At family dinners, Karl would sit with Charlotte to the one side of him and Nellie on the other. For over 30 years, Karl Barth lived in a home with his wife and his mistress. Bart described the situation as, quote, as the least imperfect situation, end quote. Nellie, who suffered the shame and embarrassment of her husband's brazen infidelity, would have described the situation, no doubt, in much more serious terms. Now, Karl Barth's behavior should offend us. Here is a man who is taking the love, the devotion, the fidelity he owed uniquely to his wife. And he not only sinfully shared those things with someone else, but he thought it was okay to bring his mistress to the dinner table. To say, in effect, while I've said I love you, Nellie, I've decided I also love Charlotte. And so so it would be wrong for me to leave you, and I cannot leave Charlotte. I'm going to pretend I can love you both, and I'm going to flaunt it. Now, in reality, of course, Carl could not have a real relationship with Nellie while he was flaunting his faithlessness. His shocking betrayal of Nellie and his marital vows was provocative, it was loveless, and it was flat-out evil. 
And that's exactly the Apostle Paul's point. As Christians, when we let our hearts become entangled with idols and then come to the Lord's Supper, we're like Karl Barth. On the one hand, we're coming to sit down with our true spouse, but on the other hand, we attempt to drag our idols, our mistresses, to the table along with us. Because when we allow idols to capture our hearts in worship, whether in a temple or on our tablets, we bring them with us to the table. But this cannot happen. We cannot truly have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with the demonic at the same time. Because if we will not strive to cut off our communion with false gods, then Christ will cut us off. This is Paul's stern warning in verses 21 and 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul ends this part of his argument with these two powerful rhetorical questions ringing in our ears. Because the answer, of course, is that it's senseless and spiritually suicidal to provoke the Lord to jealousy because of who he is. He's the, power who, he's the one who has the power of life and death in his hands. We don't. Just ask the church in the wilderness. They did provoke the Lord to jealousy, and as we saw, the result was destruction. 23,000 dead in a single day, destroyed by poisonous snakes, mowed down by the destroyer. God will not be mocked. God is rightly a jealous God. Like Nellie Bart, who could be rightly outraged by her husband uh, that he would share what was exclusively hers with someone else, in a similar way, God will not laugh off the sinful act of sharing his worship with another. But unlike Nellie, God's not trapped and forced to smile and bear the unashamed uh, uh, insult upon his worthiness to be loved and worshipped when we try and bring our idols to his table. It's a sober warning for us as we come to the Lord's Supper. We're not just checking off a box. We're engaging in a real act of spiritual communion through Christ, or through the Spirit, with Christ. Typically, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the pastor administering it will uh, say that you should only participate if you are a professing or communicant member in Christ's church. This means that you've professed faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've joined yourself with his people in a local church. This is, this is a condition for coming to the Lord's table because only those who have trusted in Jesus can have true fellowship, true communion with him. But we also ordinarily say that we should abstain from, or you should abstain from participating if you're living in unrepentant sin. To be repentant means that in specific ways you've seen how you've gone against God's commands, you're sincerely, you're deeply grieved by that, that you've, you've got broken God's laws, and you're seeking to, to, to turn from that, to turn to a new obedience. It means that while you maybe tend to grumble and complain, God's opening your eyes to see that that, in fact, is sinful, that you're grumbling and complaining against Him. And it says He's wrongly not been good enough to you. And so instead, you're opening your Bibles. You're trying to fill your minds with, with, with thoughts of God's goodness toward you. And you're asking friends to, to pray for you and to help you uh, put off the sin of complaining. It means that when you come to begin to evaluate your pornography habit, you do so as Jesus does. To grieve it. To be actively taking steps 
to leave pornography behind. It means that when God convicts you that you live with a sense of entitlement, like Israel did when they put the Lord to the test, that you're willing to confess that to God because more than anything, you don't want to displease Him. And so you plead with Him to help you to grow in humility and service uh, to one another. Repentance involves a God-given determination to say to your sin, you're not welcome here. And this is really important because the condition that Jesus sets on, on coming to commune with him at his table is not perfection, it's contrition. We all sin. Even as Christians, we continue to sin. The question is, what's our posture toward our sin? Do we love our sin or do we hate our sin? Do we hate our sin or do we hold on to our sin? Are we fleeing from sinful affections or are we moving toward them? The Lord Jesus relishes communing with repenting sinners at his table. For the repentant person, even if your sins have been many, even if they have been horrendous, Jesus still welcomes you to his table. The obstacle to our coming to Christ and his table is not our sin. He invites the needy sinner, come. The obstacle is that we don't want to let go of our sin. He gives you an invitation to the table, but it's an invitation without a plus one. You can't bring your idols to the table with you. The person who is unrepentant holds on to their sin. They can't bear to part with it. They've given themselves over to idolatrous desires of sex and stuff and success and self and whatever else it might be. And so they attempt to come to the table still willingly gripping with their hands these idolatrous desires. They're like Karl Barth coming to the table with Charlotte. It's to provoke the Lord Jesus to holy jealousy. But friends, the Lord's Supper represents a gracious opportunity for us because in the Lord's Supper, God has not only set a place for us to receive grace, but he has given us a weapon to fight sin, a tool for liberation. Because as we recognize the spiritual reality that we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper, communion with the living God, it forces us to make a decision about the idols of our heart. Entertaining idols in our heart is incompatible with fellowship with Christ. Christ will not stand for them. And the question for us today is, will you? An allegiance must be declared. We cannot put off the decision. We can either forsake Christ, abandoning him in favor of our sin. We can provoke Christ, pretending that we can love Christ and our sin at the same time. Or we can run to Christ, repenting of our sin. But we can't just say, I'll worry about it later. The best way to shake your grip free of the idols you love is to find something that is more worthy of your love. But what could be more worthy of love than the promise of communion with the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you? Look to Christ, brothers and sisters, as he's offered to you in the table to fight your sin and to flee from your idols. But it's hard, you might protest. Yes, yes it is. I understand. I get it. But God is faithful. He is faithful. He, pro he will provide you with the way of escape. And what's more, he doesn't expect you to work it out on your own. 
to cast off your idols entirely on your own. He will help you. All you need to do today is to cry out to him now, Lord Jesus, help me. Let's ask him to do that now. Oh, Jesus, as we come to your table, first of all, we want to thank you for your death, your resurrection, and your provision of this table. Lord, an act of real communion with you where we draw close to you and you draw close with us and we are reminded of your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us to warn us of the danger of holding on to our idols. And Lord, we pray that you would work in us a love for you, a desire to commune with you that is so deep that we will cast off any sin, any hindrance uh, to that. Lord, help us to see. Give us courage to, to hack off our sin. And Lord, move us to a deeper fellowship with you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.